Hi, welcome to the last panel of our living room of the forum. Uh, and I'm glad we're closing with this particular panel because it was in a way kind of very central in our thinking about this, the, the general theme of the forum, which is living room, uh, which comes from a poem by June Jordan. Um, there is less and less living room and where are my loved ones is uh, an excerpt from the poem. And it was, the whole program was a way of thinking about questions of, of intimacy and ritual and their relation to politics. Uh, so in a way, we started with a first conversation on Friday that was basically a discussion around Lyle Ashton Harris's Ektachrome Archive, which was a discussion about archiving intimacy, basically witnessing intimacy. And perhaps this conversation that we're ending with is about, you know, maybe creating intimacy or thinking about those rituals. Um, we called it holding space or holding spaces. And Nilika and um, the artists will tell you uh, more about it in a minute than I would be able to. I uh, will just introduce our moderator, Nilika Jayawardane. Um, she is an associate professor of English at the State University of New York, Oswego, from where she has just literally landed. <laughs> and I thank her for joining us. She's also an honorary research associate at the Center for Indian Studies in Africa at the University of Witwatersrand in, in South Africa. Um, she is a founding member of the online magazine Africa is a Country, where she was senior editor and contributor from 2010 to 2016. Um, her, she specializes both in, in literature and art. She teaches post-colonial literature and theory with a special focus on contemporary African literature and literature that focuses on immigration, displacement and travel. Um, and she has focused on the nexus between South African literature, photography, and the transnational or transhistorical implications of colonialism and apartheid on the body. Uh, I'll just mention her two current projects. Uh, one is a book a project on Afropix Collective, which is South Africa's only anti-apartheid photography agency. And the second one focuses on art that has been produced as part of the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movements and other student movements in, in South Africa. And I will leave the floor to her for a framing of the panel, introduction of the artists, and then the conversation. Thank you all. Thank you so much for um, staying late on a Sunday. I'm um, really appreciative because we have two phenomenal artists here whose work um, that I think that everybody needs to know. Um, so I'll start by introducing the um, idea um, that Omar um, kind of collected us uh, within. Um, artists Nantisekalelo Mutiti and Joyo Minaya's works explore the implications of ritualized practices such as African hair braiding and the preparation and consumption of food and the ways in which embodied practices can be used to build resilience, companionship, and intergenerational ties. Conversely, their respective practices show us that at times, it's important to question lessons and rituals passed down to us. After all, as we know, many rituals are imbricated in networks of power and authority, including white supremacist structures in patriarchy, class and caste systems. Mutiti and Minaya's work speak to curator Omar Barada's consideration, um, which he voiced in his curatorial statement for this forum. Quote, if oppression is embodied, 
then how do bodies become free, he asks. How do they enact performances of survival? And how does performance, uh, how do we perform survival itself? From here, we might also ask, what, um, how, how do our ritualized practices allow us to sit with our discomforts, but not maybe get so comfortable that we make the living room a place that doesn't allow resistance, like a, you know, like a grandmother's home that, where you're hushed every time you voice your dissent. And I think that's very important that these comfortable places allow us to voice our discomfort. As diasporic people, our differences and subjectivities are dependent on the social and political geographies in which we find ourselves. When being seen as the other is a constant companion in how we embody our personas, the violence of that daily performance needs a welcoming living room. Maybe the act of creating art is not only about survival, but also about creating spaces in which we may feel at home in our persons, feel welcome, feel beloved. Perhaps art can present opportunities for a return to personhood, and it can be an enactment for, hope, uh, for a hopeful liberation. It's a good point of departure for thinking about why we are compelled to work as artists, writers, thinkers, because History and the political, embedded as it is in our genetic makeup, doesn't allow us to have the privileges of not being able to think through those subjectivities. It's imperative for us to use creative acts as methodologies for theorizing our presence in the world. During our conversation today, we hope to focus on the significance of cultivating spaces that reconstitute home, to look at the necessity of refashioning our injured selves through rituals that provide a space for safety, welcome, healing, and intimacy. Each artist's respective set of works and the rituals they perform are intended to both purge and heal. They purge by attempting to cleanse or excise the residues of histories that continue to poison the present. They also heal by recreating the warmth and safety of belonging a necessary practice when continue, the continuities of one's community has been disrupted or when one has been violently unhomed. Through sharing the knowledge built from their own investigations, they help us understand how to reconfigure our own emotional landscapes. So first I want to introduce um, who you are and a little bit of a uh, biography. Um, Joy Minaya is a Dominican-American artist born in 1990. Uh, she lives and works in Manhattan, New York, and, main, and she maintains strong artistic, uh, a strong artistic presence in the Dominican Republic. Living between the U.S. and the Dominican Republic, she says, and having lived in Belgium, too, for a while, um, has made Minaya aware of her difference and subjectivity depending on context. Influenced by this, her work med uh, medita media meditates on representation, identity, constructions, gender roles, migration, and nature from a personal space, but also through larger transcultural and historical frames. She graduated from Escuela Nacional des Artes Visuales in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic in 2009, 
And Altos de Chavon School, the, um, School of Design in uh, La Romana in Dominican Republic in 2011, and the Parsons School of Design in 2013. She attended the Coegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2013. Where's Coegan? Oh, wow. Okay. So, Minaya is the recipient of Emerging Artist Award from the Rima Hortman Foundation in 2016 and the Joan Mitchell Foundation in 2015. Um, oh, uh, the previous one was 2016, and the great, a great prize and audience award in the 25th Concorso um, de Art Eduardo Leon Jimenez at the Centro uh, Leon in Santiago um, DR, and the great prize in the National Biennale of the Museum of Modern Art in Santo Domingo. She says of her work, quote, my work is an assertion of self, an exercise of learning, unlearning, decolonizing, and exercising imposed histories, cultures, and ideas. It's about reconciling and the experience of having grown up in the Dominican Republic with living and navigating the US and the global north, using gaps, disconnections, and misrepresentations as fertile grounds for creativity. I've learned there is a gaze thrust upon me which others me. I turn it uh, upon itself, mainly by seeming to fulfill its expectations, but instead sabotaging them and thus gaining, regaining power and agency. Nantisekelelo Mutiti is a Zimbabwean-born interdisciplinary artist and educator. Mutiti holds a diploma in multimedia art from the Zimbabwe Institute of Digital Arts and an MFA from the Yale School of Art with a concentration in graphic design. Recently, she has been a resident um, artist at the Museum of Com Contemporary Art in De Detroit, Recess, and the Center for Book Arts, both in New York City. She's currently assistant professor in graphic design at Virginia Commonwealth University. In 2015, Mutiti was awarded the Joan Mitchell Foundation Emerging Artists Grant in its inaugural year. She has participated in several shows, including, quote, um, Salon Style at the Studio Museum, a special screening for Dreamlands at the Whitney Museum, taking pictures at the Metropolitan Museum, and three on visibility and camouflage at We Buy Gold. Mutiti projects, produces project-based works founding Black Chalk and with um, and co company with Tinashe. Oh, Tinashe, you're here. <laughs> I knew you were in New York. Okay. Because his Instagram tells me so. <laughs> um, we'll have to introduce him too. Um, and uh, a collective of writers, artists, curators, and educators that initiate research-based projects that result in publications, archival projects, and events. As a collaborative team, Black Chalk and Co. Um, completed a residency at Keleketle Library in Joburg. Um, so, from there, and, and as an artist committed to public engagement, um, Nonsekulelo um, says that her use of print runs of posters, zines, and pin, um, pin bag buttons and booklets have made it possible to distribute images and text to a um, targeted audience. And um, I can tell you that when you grow up in a very small, um, you know, Southern African town, that these little distributed booklets were like the lifeblood of friendship, as well as like your introduction to something that you knew you wanted to be a part of, but maybe didn't have the access to kind of very, um, 
how do you call it, like high cultural networks, but it, it, it created a sense of belonging and, and an ability to be to express um, that you too could do this thing even though you didn't have these privileged networks of production uh, or didn't have access even to those privileged networks or couldn't even dream that those things existed, to have an educator or a, an elder or a mentor kind of say, hey, you can do this by just folding up some pieces of paper and putting your drawings in was a remarkable thing as a kid for me. So um, this is a really wonderful thing to speak about and hopefully we can address it. So we're going to begin by looking at some of Joyri's work, right? And so, how shall we start? Um, well, Brandon can help me play the audio file um, and then get to the slide, to the first image in the slide. And so, the work that you're hearing is um, um, audio documentation of a performance called Sunset Slit, uh, which is a performance I did in 2015 at Grace Exhibition Space. Um, you can go to the next slide. And um, and uh, the office of Skohegan in New York, and it's based on um, the appropriation of this imagery. This is a Google search for um, I can't remember, hair, water, whip, something. Um, and this is the result. And I was interested in how the mostly female figure, it's kind of like merged with the landscape. I'm really interested in this kind of like metonymical relationship between women and landscape and uh, performing from within that construction to evidence it's, um, you know, gendered, um, kind of stereotypical, colonized um, group of meanings. Um, and you can go to the next slide. So the audio that you're listening is um, for this performance where I, I sewed 20 towels together and made this very large rug that it's underneath me. And then um, the bucket of water begins with clean water and I'm wearing this white bikini and a white shirt. And I have braids. Um, I think you can go to the next slide to get like a, yeah. So I have braids like this and gold beaten ends of the braids. And um, so I spent like six or seven hours that day braiding my hair and um, putting black pigment in it that when I come into the room, you don't really see, but then, so everything's wide. I come into the room, uh, there's um, the clean water bucket um, on top of the rug, and I stand in front of it and I put my hair in it um, without, so I bent over without bending my knees. Um, and then I whip back and, and that starts kind of getting the water dirty because the pigment, it's getting out of the hair and it's um, staining um, the objects that are white. Um, and then I keep doing that. And as I keep doing, I'm holding kind of like, um, well, I slowly start bending my knees and then holding that pose for every whip. So um, kind of like squats, like, but 
holding it, holding it while I go down until I end up with the last um, whips um, kneeling in front of the water bucket. And by the end of the performance, um, you can go to the next slide. The, the towel ends up like this, and you can see the, where the water bucket was, where my knees were, kind of in this V shape, and um, all the staining. And these are like the 20 towels. Um, and to me, this piece, um, it's, it's appropriating uh, objects that are part of the visual culture of tourism in the tropics. Um, leisure, um, lux luxury tourism, um, and it's a commentary on the black me female bodies that maintain, that do the labor to maintain um, this apparatus. Um, and it's also, the, the hair becomes a whip, uh, which is kind of a, maybe like a summoning of, you know, historical things that happen in, in this place, um, like oppression, slavery. But also, it's um, a way of um, maybe protesting, getting rid of this history, but also um, reclaiming this territory of whiteness through these objects. So like through the staining, is kind of a reclaiming. Um, and I, it's something that I've explored earlier in other performances, this idea of kind of um, embodying a stereotype and um, disassembling it from within, from the performance of it. Uh, but also the idea of like constructing through destroying or constructing through um, seemingly, you know, ruining something. Um, and then I, I really enjoyed of this performance um, the audio of it is like the rhythmic, um, cyclical um, sounds that happen during the performance. Yeah, and that's that. Yeah, we can move to the next one. Okay. Um, and you can stop the audio and then play the video that says Sabi La Leche. The thing is like, these are links, so he'll have to do it anyways through them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't realize the beads were hitting. Yeah, the beads were hitting the plastic thing, and then it and then it hitting my back too, and then there's a the water that's like splashing back. Okay, so we should um, let's talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and then the next piece it's called um, Sabila Leche, and it's uh, I'll speak on top of the video. It's a. Uh, it's a two-channel piece where I recorded myself um, straightening my hair on one side and um, and getting it back to curly on the other side using this kind of substances, these elements that were symbolic to me. So um, on one side I have my hair is curly and I'm um, using the aloe uh, to straighten it. So I put aloe on each like piece of hair before straightening it, straightening it. And um, that to me was kind of a, um, a commentary on, well, let me see, where do I start? <laughs> so 
So, okay, so aloe and milk um, to me are elements of like healing and nurturing. Um, so I heal the hair before I burn it, uh, forestrating it. And um, I kind of relate straightening your hair to um, Dominican politics, Dominican race politics, Dominican culture around hair. Um, Dominican hair salon women are kind of known for like being good at straightening hair because um, they're so obsessed with it. And um, so growing up in the DR, you will be sent to the hair salon, sent to the hair salon every week, if not twice a week, to maintain the straight hair that is so coveted. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like the whole racial tensions between the DR and Haiti. Um, but basically, raising the Dominican Republic is very complex. And this is um, in conversation with that complexity. And then on the other side, uh, I'm using milk to get my hair from, from being straight back to being curly, uh, milk and a fan. And um, it's an, uh, the idea is to like think of re-nurturing the hair or um, reviving it. Uh, and, and I like also how aloe and milk um, make me think of um, female roles of power, um, like the, the healer or the mother, um, the nurturer. It's also messy. And yeah, the, the original video is something like 50 um, minutes and it just loops and it's kind of straight video. This is only a six minute excerpt. Um, let me see if I have. Thank you. It's also, um, I was also thinking of like the duality of um, mixed raceness, if that's uh, the way of saying it, mixed race, duality. Um, and the idea of like transformation, chameleonic qualities and, and fluidity and being able to um, go back and forth between multiple ways of presenting yourself. Although at this point I hadn't straightened in my hair since I stopped relaxing it when I was like 15 and this was in 2015 so I haven't done it ever since because I hated it, but um, it's, uh, it was an interesting experience also just like um, to go through that again for, for the purpose of documenting it for this performance. Um, yeah, and then the last piece that I wanted to present um, Oh, also, I forgot mentioning something about this piece. Um, so my family is from Barahona in the south of the Dominican Republic. And I remember when visiting their hometown, seeing a lot of aloes um, hanging from the doors. And that has, um, I think, like symbolic meaning tied to uh, religious practices like Santeria. Um, my family is Protestant, so they, they're not necessarily leaning to like those symbols, but I was always very curious about them um, 
So that's also part of the inspiration for one side of the, of the video. Um, and then the next video, we can stop this one and go to the next slide and click on the next link. It's called Satisfied, and it's one of my first, um, one of my earliest, earliest performances. And I, in this video, I started kind of um, being critical about women's role in domestic spaces. And it's also, it's inspired in, again, kind of like matrilineal genealogies, um, seeing like my mom and my grandma perform this role at home. And it's looking at the ritual of breakfast as a, a metaphor of the everyday. And it uses coffee and sugar, which... Um, so the performance is... Uh, to me, I was exploring the idea of resignation, of um, an acceptance of the life conditions that um, you have in spite of not being fulfilled. Um, and it uses sugar and coffee as um, materials and substances that are tied to being energized. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a wake-up call from this domestic domesticity, from this resignation, from this um, stereotypical gender roles. Um, and what I do is, so at the time, this was 2013, and I was graduating um, art school, and I was doing these um, forms, uh, kind of like, hard to define forms that kind of um, resemble interior, like intestines or um, some undefined bodily shape to represent um, burden or, um, yeah, I used that in different forms at the time, but for this performance, I was stuffing my mouth with it and um, I just carry on with the task until I finish, and then I clean the table and leave. Um, and yeah, let me see if I have any other notes about this. Agency, choice, power. At the time I was interested in um, the idea of choice and how, um, whether we choose these roles or whether they're imposed and, and what is your agency if you're carrying in, if you um, keep carrying it on. And I think that's all my notes about these. We can finish seeing the note, the, the excerpts. This is three minute, no, you can, you can finish. It's um, only, yeah, the end is good. You should pause it before the next video starts. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I thought perhaps we could do the questions afterwards, after we've looked at also uh, Nancy's work. Microphone. 
Um, I thought we could uh, also um, first look at Nancy's work, and then we can have questions and conversation afterwards, yeah? Okay, so go ahead. Great. Um, it's such an honor to be here and also to present work with Jody. Um There's so much overlap, but also I really appreciate the specificity in your work and how much learning I do uh, by participating as an audience member. I'm really proud to be a colleague of yours. Um, this is a project I started um, in Johannesburg um, in a hairdressing salon in Yeovil. Uh, Yeovil is a space where many um, immigrants uh, find themselves. Um, it's a space where uh, they're able to take up, um, uh, they're able to find a space to live and there's representation from people from many different parts of the continent. Um, my hair braider um, was Cameroonian in this uh, South African um, neighborhood, and the barber in the um, hair salon is from Nigeria. Um, the braiding assistant was from Kenya, and the uh, woman that um, brought me to the salon, and it was sort of randomly chosen, um, is my good friend, Midus Tando Bongela, who is Tosa. Um, she is from South Africa. Um, this is a transcript of the braiding uh, appointment, and I've been doing a lot of work around the African hair braiding salon. A lot of the work has been thinking about repetition, um, you know, the aesthetic of the braids, thinking about algorithm and code in relationship to that, um, but nothing was really uh, pointing to the labor and time. And I really, um, it, within the transcript, Melissa um, Tando comes back to the salon several times and asks the hair, hairdresser, when are you going to finish? You know, we've got a lot of other things we want to do, we want to hang out. And uh, it's always, you know, 15 minutes just now, 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 30 minutes. And this ends up being a three-hour hairdressing appointment, um, which is kind of standard. Um, there's uh, areas um, of uh, pattern uh, which run when we are not speaking, and so moments where I'm in the dryer or maybe we've sort of run out of uh, things to talk about, um, you see the pattern. This is running in real time. Um, there's a lot of other conversation happening in the um, salon, uh, but I do not include it. For me, the salon is a very important space, especially in a, in a community where there are immigrants. It's a space where people are able to go in to find employment and to go in to find other kinds of information. Um, and so the gentlemen um, on the barber side are having a very deep discussion about what happens um, within you know, financing and um, trying to finance their homes by using work that they do within South Africa and sending it back home, but all the politics and what happens, the missteps and the sort of way they're tricked by family. Um, you know, people are asking how to get documentation, all of these things. And for me, it's so, um, I, these places are important because of uh, the role they serve, how people are able to serve each other. Um, it's called Morningo because uh, a woman walks past the salon and the braider stops and waves at her and says, Morningo, and then my uh, colleague, uh, mimics her. We sort of have a chuckle. Southern Africans, uh, you know, often like to um, pick up on the West African accent. And um, it was really important for her to explain to us why she spoke in that way, a way to show that she was open, that it's more than just a greeting, that she's, that she's inquiring about the woman's family and well-being and opening up a space for more conversation, not just like a very uh, Western, like, high-by situation. Um, we can go to the Next, uh, yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm worried about. I'm, I'm worried about. Um, 
This uh, piece, um, I think we can play the video, um, is also dealing with uh, similar ideas of a space uh, that people gravitate towards. Sometimes the hair braiding salons are very, very full. Sometimes they're so full that the hair braiders that rent chairs in the space can't all be in there with their clients. Um, and then there's many other people that come to the space of the salon, like children who can't be left at home unattended, grandmothers that need to be left somewhere safe, or community members that are just coming to watch a video of a baby shower that happened back home in Benin, but they were not able to all travel. And so the person that was able to travel home plays it on the television and community members come through. Um, the salon becomes like a cinema. You can drop the volume slightly. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, but this is a different kind of gathering. This is um, outside a hostel in, um, at Wits University. Is it Wits University or UJ um, in Johannesburg? And it's at the Sunnyside um, Hostel and the young women are learning a war cry. It's something that's supposed to bring them together. It's to initiate the first year students. Um, and I found this uh, audio track to be quite uh, interesting. All these women are cheering and learning and really sort of enjoying each other's company and finding power together. But there's these young men that are walking past and screaming, shut up, shut up, stop singing. Um, so I, I sort of have been thinking a lot about spaces for women, spaces that we can find safe and how um, oftentimes they are attacked and what it means to have places where we can go into. Um, I'm not uh, saying that the African Hair Breeding Salon is a space just for women. We find instances where men are actually participating in being uh, hairdressers. Men also come in to get their hair done. They're also part of the community. But it is quite significant. It is quite a significant space for uh, women, especially African immigrants. And um, before I uh, leave this uh, image, I want to uh, mention that for me, this idea of being able to go into those spaces has been so important for me. They became spaces where I felt a sense of kinship um, as a woman coming into a graduate uh, program, which was quite international, but there was no representation um, of other African uh, students. Um, and also, you know, a place where I can go and not need to explain myself. We were starting off on a baseline, uh, some kind of commonality, and we can build from there. Um, some of the women that have done my hair over time became sort of adopted aunties and, you know, things like that. Um, just conversations that are much easier. I really, um, it, they were so important for me. Did I do it right? Yes, I did. Um, Unbreakable, you can play um, and maybe drop the volume because the sound is quite pronounced, um, but the audio is still very important. Um, I started to think about hairdressing rituals when I came uh, to the US. Of course, it's something you participate in uh, your whole life. Um, as a woman that comes from a family of only girls, combs were so important. We shared a set of 10 combs. Um, and I actually realized how uh, important that is. You don't just share comb with anybody. Um, and so I left home um, in 2009 to come across the U.S. for graduate school and left all the combs at home for my sisters and my niece and arrived in the U.S. without a comb for my hair. I thought this was going to be a simple operation of going to the grocery store, going to the drugstore and picking something up that I could use but could not find a white tooth comb in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, there were many brushes that I know would have 
uh, destroyed my uh, hair. And so I spent 461 days without combing my hair from the day I arrived in the US till I went to the UK to visit my um, two older sisters who had moved there. I couldn't afford to go back to Zimbabwe that summer. Um, and my family were appalled. Uh, you've been in America, you're at university, people know we're related and you're not combing your hair. <laughs> It also, uh, for them, not combing my hair meant I was not washing my hair, which was not true. Um, and in the U.S., it's wonderful that not combing your hair can also be a style, just like in Johannesburg, South Africa. But Southern Africans are much more conservative. Um, and so I was rushed over to the high street to Mr. Yafele's uh, um, beauty supply store where um, there were many hair products and many kinds of combs and weaves and extensions. Um, and I was bought a set of 10 combs, like the one that we had at home that I left behind. Um, I was grateful, but not for the fact of the combs. I was grateful to find the space and to understand that there's a way that uh, African immigrants were serving each other by creating these spaces for themselves. Um, but getting to know about the beauty supply store industry more and more I started to realize that there's other cultures involved um, in this. I just came from the Midwest, and there's a Korean family that runs a franchise called Mid-K, um, and they have got beauty supply stores in Omaha, in Iowa, um, in other places. And so it's quite interesting to think about this niche need um, and how sort of economics plays into it. Um, and so for me, this idea of the comb, this Thing that I'm supposed to use every single day um, in the morning and in the evening because of the type of hair that I have, you know, was so important to my family. Um, this idea of like um, drummed in uh, ritual, this uh, very repetitive act. Um, I was resentful, you know, about ha having been bought these combs, but it's something that uh, inspired me to actually begin the body of work that I, you know, that I've just been presenting. And um, I, think, I guess the last thing I want to say is um, there are some things I miss about, though, that set of 10 combs. It uh, was a way that we cared for each other at home, sitting on the floor on a Sunday evening and oiling each other's scalps. I feel my hair texture has changed because I don't have a sister to oil my scalp. And so just thinking about uh, those things in diaspora, even though we've got access to the tools, just the relationships that, uh, you know, I can't go to the hairdresser every Sunday to get her to oil my scalp. You know, she's going to charge me money. And so what relationships can give you that, uh, yes. Um, this is uh, one of the last things I will show. Um, this is me at uh, the Women's Maximum Security Prison in Harare, Zimbabwe. It's uh, called Chikurubi. Um, older mentor um, told me that she was going there to get her dreadlocks twisted, and um, a young friend also uh, told me that she used to get her hair braided there, and I was quite intrigued that there was a hair salon that uh, people from the, from the city could go to uh, where the women that, uh, you know, held by this uh, system um, where they're able to work in this way. Um, and so I really wanted to go. I've been going to hairdressers uh, in the US and in South Africa um, to do research for my uh, artistic projects, but hadn't really done any work like this back home. So I went to the salon. It's a, a couple of meters, just a concrete block with a pole in each corner and a corrugated um, roof. Um, the woman with the green hat and green shirt is the guard, and actually she is learning from um, the women uh, that I, I never know how to talk about, you know, people that are within the system. 
I'll just call them hairdressers because that's what they are in this situation. Um, the hairdressers are teaching her how to braid. And so there's a power dynamic that shifts uh, between who has authority, who is an authority. Uh, there's knowledge that's shifting there. Um, I paid $3 to get this hairstyle done. And um, it was quite interesting to think about the economics uh, you know, of the salon in the US versus um, back home. It's, but it's even cheaper here because they're not allowed to, you know, get lots of, you know, uh, they're not allowed to, to charge a lot. And the guard um, makes sure that the pricing is always uh, kept the same. Um, I got this amazing hairstyle done. I let the braider decide what she would do. Uh, I didn't have extensions. So when you don't use extensions, we call it freehand. So this is a thousand lines freehand. That's the name of the basic braiding style, but then the pattern can change. Um, I was quite um, surprised at myself and disappointed at the end of the appointment. Um, I turned, I paid and turned to the head braider and asked her what her name was. And the other women uh, sort of stood up, well, straightened their backs and said to me, you didn't ask her her name when you sat down. And I totally broken protocol. The space of hair braiding is a relational space. And I had gotten so involved in the sort of research aspect and intrigue of what's going on, you know, the salon at, at the prison, that I, to I totally forgot to just to have respect for what, what that uh, space can give me and just like the sacredness of that uh, relational, you know, someone is touching me. I'm letting this woman uh, touch my head. Um, she's seeing me from a position that many people won't uh, see me. We're so close in proximity in terms of our bodies. And I just, uh, yeah, I just totally, uh, it was a total misstep. Um, and uh, I'll just click through these very quickly. Uh, part of my work, uh, when I'm not making images, I'm setting up situations for people to teach each other braiding. I did not know how to braid hair when I arrived in the US. And so this project was uh, a way for me to learn there's amazing YouTube videos out there that can teach you everything that you need to know. Uh, but I also like to learn one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and I started to find that people really enjoyed this process of teaching and learning each other. Um, there's some basic techniques, but each person does it slightly differently. You start the braid in this way. Tension is another way. People are, you know, use different hands, overhand, underhand. There's so much terminology in here, so much uh, knowledge. And it was wonderful for friends and um, to come together, colleagues to come together and, um, and do this kind of work. And it really helped me in my practice, understanding the actual mechanics of what it means to braid. It's such a difficult task. There's so much mathematics built into it that we take for granted um, until you have to do it. Um, this image here is one of my favorite. As we walk through cities like New York, any space that black women have moved through, we will find tumbleweave. It is one of the things that we, uh, you know, it's funny, it uh, becomes dirty once it's outside of the salon, what's not on your head. Uh, but it's a really important part of our lives. It's a strong marker that we were there. You know, and I think for me, it's a real sense of agency. I, I love, I photograph tumbleweave. Wherever I see it, it's, it's really wonderful. I know that there's people like me around. Um, yeah, I just think it's, it's very important, that strand. Um, and this, you know, a few more images. Oftentimes, when people talk about doing community-oriented projects, social practice, it's about you as an artist expert going into a community which somehow uh, 
for, for whatever rubric you're using is disadvantaged. When I uh, make uh, community-oriented uh, work, I'm working with my colleagues, I'm working with my friends. In this photograph, there's a student of mine who I taught in Zimbabwe when she was 18. She's uh, now uh, doing her MFA in the, in the UK. She was uh, studying um, in the US for undergrad. Um, there are friends here that are involved in city planning that I've met at exhibitions. There's curators. Um, I think it's so important to think about community in other ways. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I think that's the, that's the end of me. Okay. So I have a couple of questions for both of you before we turn it over to um, all of you for questions. And um, one of them is really about the importance of the noise in your works, you know? Um, oh, um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This thing, I, I was really interested in the the role of noise and chaotic noise, but also noise as a marker of um, strength, resilience, presence. Um, and uh, in in yours, I hadn't heard the the fact of the beads hitting um, either your body or the floor or the bucket, and so that became a really important feature of the video. Um, because, of course, like, like you, like all of us, when we've seen pictures of beaches, it's very rare that we see anything other than white bodies, white women, and a particular type of white woman, too. And I think, you know, there's a few Instagram feeds like um, Black Voyages or something that tries to um, insert itself and trouble that. And I love it because, of course, they're, like, amazing and gorgeous near nude people traveling all over the world, you know, in like everything, every place, you know, um, buying spices somewhere, on a beach somewhere, looking good somewhere. And so, but that, those are very, very rare and far in between. And I think uh, even though I grew up close to the coast when I was very, very young and then later um, uh, lived in places near the coast, I never imagined that... Um, anything other than white bodies belonged on the beach. And especially that is in context of like having grown up with apartheid in the background and um, beaches were closed off. And unless they were like dangerous beaches with riptides um, where white people walked their dogs and left the dog shit on the beach. So I've always, I think, you know, you don't think of yourself as a person who is um, part of that leisurely and also very privileged um, leisure kind of activity, that this this coast is not yours. And so when I sometimes talk to my students about photographs of, um, um, it's um, Cedric Nunn's photographs of young black boys who are surfing, body surfing, because they don't have the money for a surfboard, um, that's the first they've ever seen a black person surfing, um, never mind with a body or a board. So this was a really important part of what, um, what you were working on. And there were so many kinds of conversations in that, along with that noise. And I wanted to kind of ask you about the significance of putting those beads in there too, as a part of the disruption that you were doing. Um, I think when I first conceptualized the the performance, the I didn't think of the audio. That ended up being um, serendipity, really. But I think once I did the performance, it became a really um, important part. Like I really fell um, in love with the sound as a way of, like as a as a as a very strong part of the piece. Mm. 
Um, and this is a performance that, so like when I perform, I try not to have like video cameras in the way because I've been to performances where it's more of the, more of the like um, documenting technology than the actual performance. And I try to avoid that in my performances. So I either only perform for the camera or if I perform for an audience and it's only for the audience and then I restage it for the camera. So this one is one that I haven't restaged. And um, I still want to do that because I really like um, that piece and, and I want to translate that experience to video. Um, and yes, the audio is very important and the rhythm that is created and, and how that relates to like um, me holding um, the squat positions and, um, and the labor that is implied in all of that. And it's interesting that it takes you to that space of like the, the beaches in you know, the global south. I just came back from the Dominican Republic where I'm from. I was there for five days for my grandma's 80th birthday. And I managed to escape two of those days to the beach. Um, and I was reminded of the, the politics of beaches in the Dominican Republic because it's basically all resorts. And then there's like a little entry point for like the regular people. Um, and by law, they can't kick you out of the beach. Like the so many meters from the water is public. Yes. But in reality, you can only enter through this little hallway yeah. and and there's only an entry point. You not you need to know where the entry points are. It's it's very I mean, I guess if you're a local it's not complicated, it's like public knowledge, whatever, but it's still, you know, there's like certain things about access. You probably need a car to get to certain beaches. Um, I, I kind of, since I was 14, I was taking public transportation, which um, wasn't necessarily something that I was encouraged to, but I wanted to not be driven by my mom everywhere. Um, and I would take trip to, trips to the beach. And um, it's, it's kind of dangerous because they leave you on like, the bus leaves you on like one side of the highway. You have to like cross a highway real quick. It's a big highway. It's uh, lots of accidents happen on the highway. So just like getting from the highway to like walking into the beach, mm -hmm. it's a thing that endangers you <laughs> if you don't have a car. So there's all of these like levels of access. And then there's the braiding as well. One of the reasons I um, ended up with those signifiers for that performance was because um, since I was kind of around 14 when I entered art school and uh, started taking public transportation. Um, I also stopped straightening my hair. Um, and, and ever since I've been kind of looking for, um, you know, getting in, in touch with all the culture that we've been denied of just by, you know, the course of history in the Dominican Republic. Um, and, and one of the things that I was really, um, excited about um, in New York City was all these braids and all these different hairstyles for natural curly Afro hair. Um, and then I thought back of like the, um, the hairstyles in the Dominican Republic and ended up thinking about this, you know, leisure, luxurious pleasure spaces of like the beach and who is the audience for those spaces. And I remember that when, and I actually looked up Caribbean braids or something, and all you see is basically white women yeah. um, with beads and um, uh, braids and, be and beads, because it's a, like a tourist thing to do, activity yeah. to do. 
to get your hair braided when you're somewhere in the tropics. So part of the performance was also reclaiming that, um, the kind of the beach braids for the black bodies within the Dominican Republic cultural space, yeah. Um, yeah. which has so, such a complicated um, relationship to race. However, we, we do have like a big upcoming um, embracing your, you know, race um, scene. Yeah. Um, there's now, I think, three natural hair salons, Ooh. <laughs> um, which is exciting, mm -hmm. growing up with none. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and you start seeing, there's like, there's been a lot of discussion and um, around hair politics in the workspace, cause, uh, and, and like in um, official documents. There, there was like cases where people were told to like, oh, you need to get your hair out of your face because it's messy, blah, blah, blah. And then people were protesting those things. So there's definitely discussion and activism more and more present around like hair politics in the DR. And um, how much like if you're going to, if you are a person who's pioneering in that, how much repetition there has to be, how much labor there has to be on, on that? Because on, until you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it, and it's a labor. And as all of you have been in that position of having to do that labor, I'm sure. And sometimes I explain that this is labor that you're asking me to do. It's unpaid labor. And people always look at you shocked that you're doing that you're even calling them on that. Um, some people expect that that's your job to, in fact, explain things. Um, and that, that labor leaves you exhausted um, and unable to do other um, kinds of thinking and labor that you wish to do, creative labor often. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it leaves you at a disadvantage, but nobody ever really talks about it. So that was what I, I keep thinking about both of your works is that you call attention to the repetitiveness of the labor that you one has to um, undertake whether we um, ever wanted to or not. So um, I wanted to kind of ask you also about the um, kind of uh, very ritual and beautiful noises. And in fact, I, I didn't want you to turn the volume down, I'm but sorry. We, wouldn't so have, sorry. we wouldn't have heard your voice yeah. though then. But um, when I watched those um, videos on my own, I loved the kind of um, noise of it. Not the noise, but the music, the mu yeah, the sound and the rhythm. Um, the drum for the, the comb, mm -hmm. and it gives this comb a lot of power because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm the comb, I'm here, I'm very important. Yeah. I'm just a plastic comb, but I mean everything. Yeah. So that uh, video is, I mean, it's stop motion. So I had many, just took many different photographs of me doing things with a comb. I had no idea what it was going to be. I just had to make a video mm -hmm. with, this, with these two objects. Mm -hmm. And it was really about the color of them, what that green comb looks like in my hands, the fact I can't use it. It's written unbreakable, all those plastic combs are unbreakable, which I think is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Also makes you think about the ritual. Um, and then that amazing blonde wig and thinking about going into that salon and that was an African space. It's, a, it's an African space, a black space. Um, and we have these objects in there and um, there's a lot of conversation around hair politics, mm -hmm. natural hair. And, but I also think that um, the agency for a black woman, for a black man to pick and choose how to self-style, um, mm -hmm. wherever the cues are coming from, 
you know, is really important. For Black Southern African, we are looking at Black America for those cues are not necessarily the, our white colonial, former colonial masters. And so for me, the, the richness of Blackness is also coming from, you know, many different uh, things. Um, so, the, so this drum um, is audio. I'm searching for audio to uh, work with because I, when I make video, I choreograph the motion to the sound. And I love this djembe drum beat and, and what it does and how it's sort of like, uh, just the punctuation, the, yeah. the the different the range of rhythms, I think, is really uh, wonderful, and yeah, that was important to me. Uh, there's something quite interesting that you spoke about in terms of labor uh, work, explaining um, so much of this work began in graduate school. That set of combs from London uh, went back with me to New Haven. I put them up at my desk, and it became, you know, they became graphics, and I started doing a lot of uh, projects that. Uh, colleagues and faculty could not engage with. It was like, it was show and tell each time I was presenting work. There was no conversation around how I can make the work stronger in terms of what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, just like quite interesting uh, thinking about pulling these into the academic space and them not being recognized as part of an academic conversation. Um, and so that uh, at the end where you see the photographs at recess and, and then um, some of the others for Give Take Art, Syracuse University, this is me sort of trying to figure out uh, how I can uh, bring a community around my work that with the point of entry, we sort of, there's a baseline understanding and then I can um, work with my colleagues to have much more critical dialogue that can help me move forward. Um, and so that, you know, that, that residency for me was so important and we really did bring uh, towards me the kind of uh, critical voices, the writers, the curators, the uh, friends or colleagues that have seen my work over time, the people from back home who can uh, understand or see where the shift happens because of my moving to the US and what that uh, means uh, for them. So also as I'm working, I'm trying to recover <laughs> from uh, what happens with my body and certain objects um, uh, in, in spaces where maybe people might feel that they don't uh, sort of uh, level up with uh, sophisticated uh, sort of thinking and ideas. And then also this uh, work of um, uh, experimenting on the web, the braidingbraiding.com is all coded by hand and, uh, you know, really thinking about how our practices are totally aligned with of ideas of sophisticated technologies. They're part of a trajectory. We can use the same kind of language to describe. We also have our own language uh, to describe um, that has a lot more metaphor and uh, you know, is uh, quite uh, dynamic. Um, and so for me, the labor's happening. Uh, I try not to do the explaining. I'm not trying to convert anyone. Yeah, yeah. There's levels of reading. There's an insider conversation, and I value that so much. There's always something that someone on the outside can get there's a way for people to move in if they choose, but they also have to do some work to get in. Yeah. yeah. So the, for me, the work is also making a space uh, for a particular community. Yeah. It's in the language uh, that that community speaks in. Yeah, that's really, really important. I just want to ask you as an aside, when were you in Syracuse? Um, <laughs> so I lived there. 2015. Oh, I wish I'd known. The community yeah. folk yeah. art uh, museum. I know exactly where yeah. that is, yeah. Um, and that space is a wonderful space for us because, the, in, in, again, in a small town, it's not like black people don't have 
presences and also the trouble of being other yeah. um, in those spaces that um, which are largely white spaces. Mm -hmm. And so these become like really important interventions and um, spaces uh, that create senses of comfort and that you are an insider conversation yeah. rather than having to perform and explain and do that labor. Um, so the other thing I want to add there is that I think, um, who are the writers here? I know at least one, and one curator who writes. Um, <laughs> so um, I just wanted to add that I think in, in, because I think there is no way around the fact that we are diasporic bodies, that we are always going to be engaging in this labor, that, um, that artists and writers and curators work together, because I think that's, that's the um, work that enrich my life as a writer that I wasn't just writing like, I don't know, you know, some navel gazing story, but in engaging with artists that it was a way to kind of um, work with the bodies of, two bodies of work essentially, or, or essentially a history that came with us, um, our other artists, our own work, and then to put words to it so that it's there as a, as a conversation within, as well as a conversation in which those who wish to kind of do some of that work can also enter. And um, I think there was a um, scholar who recently said that he didn't like the use of the word translator or translation work as the, uh, the writer, as a translator between art and the public. And um, I think it's still translation work, but it's deeper than that. It's a conversation that you, you're having, or perhaps you're providing a salon in which you can feel comfortable, but also bring discomfort in and also trouble what's comfortable. And so having said that, I'm then thinking about these, um, the, the war cry, the video of the young women who are together and creating a space for themselves, very busy in their own little world and, and their own big world. Because in the video, you can see many heads. They're an army um, and they're transposed and superimposed on each other. And how, you know, like in any kind of recruit situation, you become kind of each other and you love, you know, that moment of um, essentially being, uh, uh, what's that called when you go into the army and you are trained? Boot camp, yeah, that English, that word. Um, so that boot camp where you're trained, you know, like, and then your personal identity is less lessened and then you're, you're the group. And then it gives you this enormous feeling of strength and resilience. And then you're going into this new work that's very difficult, the university and looking at these books, very, very hard work. And so you feel this companionship that will carry you across this very difficult um, water, essentially. And in that moment when they are so full of like joy and happiness and in fact, warriorhood, that's when that outside interference comes in because that's when you are the most threatening. And that's when you heard these men shouting at them saying, shut up, shut up or something like that. Um, and essentially it's a, it's a disciplining mode to to the resilience and strength and um, companionship that these women have built. So it was really fascinating to me how strong and um, together they sounded, mm -hmm. like a choir, but you know, it's very punctuated sounds. And then at the same time, there was this kind of, um, which I didn't even realize, was that even in the um, recording? The men shouting yeah, at them, yeah, it yeah. was. So um, I did not make the recording. My colleague, um, Diani Dues, was uh, doing study abroad uh, in Johannesburg. She was studying at NYU at the time. And um, 
you know, she was recording a lot of audio because she's a sound artist and um, it was just one of many sound bites from her trip to South Africa. This is a very long piece. You know, that's, a, that's just the introduction to the piece. Um, yes, there's that uh, threat, but it's also kind of jeering. It's also making fun of. Um, but there's, for me, there's something else going on in the video as well that maybe is not so like kumbaya. It's women uh, working to indoctrinate other women yeah. and an expectation of singing with one voice. So, you know, it's also reminding me of my siblings and the combs and like, you need to be presenting yourself in this particular way. Um, when I uh, started collecting those images uh, from the video, that are in the video, they're from a book that was published in the 70s. Um, it's produced by a Ghanaian uh, photographer, and there's just one uh, statement in the front that he's written, hairstyles for the African woman, really a sweet piece, but he's just photographing women in the neighborhood. Um, those hairstyles are not hairstyles that are worn right now by contemporary women. The hairstyle I'm getting done at the salon is not something that is being worn by adult women who see themselves as sophisticated as a schoolgirl's hairstyle. It's a form of control. It's a way for us to appear neat. You know, these are colonial, um, these are sort of co colonial frameworks. Um, my hair will never grow long into a ponytail unless I do a lot of work and, you know, use all these amazing ointments, but um, I, don't have, I don't have time personally. Um, and so it's a, <laughs> it's a way for the sort of British colonialists uh, to, to um, make, to, for, for our hair not to be seen, to do these tiny plaits or to shave our heads. Um, but then uh, it gets reinforced into our psyche. Once we leave school, we do not want that anymore. You cannot wear that. It is not sophisticated. It's too bush. It's too, um, you know, uh, close to home, and then we wear these amazing weaves, and, uh, you know, as soon as you are on break from school, the first weekend you are finding a braider to come to your home, and you're sitting on the ground for those hours so that you can enjoy leisure and you can find yourself, and, you know, so, just so many complicated notions there around uh, women training other women how they need to be, how they need to look. Um, yeah. I think our final question before... Um, I hand it to you to ask questions. It's like, I, I mean, I think that's what was interesting to me really also about this use of ritual because for me, ritual has also been really about a lot of control and um, disciplining and uh, redirecting and uh, a lot of uh, stuff about neatness for us when we were children um, and neatness for, I know, like for all my Caribbean students has been about, you know, having hair that has been straightened, pulled back or whatever, you know, all this kind of um, ironing out of um, certain characteristics to kind of put it, put it, hide it back, hide it back. And there's a lot of damage that is done to you in order to present that version of yourself. Um, even if it's just about like neatness for school, there's just like, especially for girls, there was a lot of um, discipline and, and watchfulness and aunties on the corner of the street watching when you were walking home. Did you have your shoes untied? By the time I walked home, got home, my mother would already know that A, I was talking to a white boy, B, my shoes were untied. And see, maybe my necktie was like a little bit loose because it was a hot season or something like that. All, all of those things would have been communicated. And so the, this, this kind of watchfulness of each other and all of the, the group being big part of um, watching. It's like so community policing, self-policing. Community policing, you know? yeah, that's it. So all of you, uh, but, um, all, all of us 
have been, you know, indoctrinated into that, doing that, and how much you have to break and create new rituals of, of um, unlearning that. And that's also a repetitive labor, because I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to re recognize when I'm up to that, um, that train thing that I, that's my um, default. And then say, what am I doing? Is this what, is this what I want to do, really? And this idea of thinking about choice, you know, when you said, um, do I really have choice when I'm doing this thing? Is there such a thing as agency? And it's a, it's a thing that when I'm teaching literature, my students and I talk about all the time because they always say, oh, she had a choice. Why didn't she do that? And that's from a very privileged space because essentially I have, I'm talking about the fact that she made a decision given to really, really shitty options that she had and they're not even options when you when you have such damaging and demeaning things that you can do two things that are damaging and demeaning what how is that a choice how is that about agency and it uh, we can only speak about agency and and choice when when we come from positions of privilege when we can actually choose things that are um, healthy and healing for us and will in fact um, enhance our agency um, for us to have that 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 already assumes that we have some modicum of um, privilege. Mm -hmm. So that was really an important part of the, the unlearning rituals that you um, are both um, working on. Um, I wondered if you could speak to that, or should we? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I love your remark. That's one of those things. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, one. Um, I thought of so many things when you were talking, but at this point, it's like, um, no pressure, it's okay, it will come as we speak with yeah. it. Um, so maybe I should ask um, all of you to, any, any questions that you have, any commentary, and um, please. Yeah, and please take the mic. Yeah. Okay. Um, hi, I thought y'all's work was um, brilliant. I think about, uh, you guys talked about that. Please introduce yourself. Oh, forgive me. Hi, y'all. Um, my name's Varushka. Um, so I wrote down some thoughts or questions. Um, so the war cry, the war recording was not in fact spontaneous. That wasn't you just walking by and hearing this by happenstance. You actually were in conversation with a friend who then shared that with you. Um, a friend just shared me all the sound from her trip. It did happen when she was just there. She was at the hostels. She was recording conversations with friends and just what was going on in the different spaces that she was moving through. We didn't know what we would incorporate into a video piece that we were working on but that one stood out as something to open with. Sweet, thank you very much. And then um, with regard to your research around um, hair supply uh, companies and chains, um, did you take into consideration like um, the kind of the willful obtuseness on the part of capitalists or folks trying to make a buck that they would ignore a clear market in Omaha, Nebraska or Indiana and that folks that are immigrants themselves would come and see, oh, these folks don't have an opportunity to buy X, Y, and Z. Let me step in. Um, I kind of think about that in terms of sexism more often than race, but it's cool that like that was, I kind of made that connection because I think in a capitalist society, 49% of the population is women, and yet we're not included in the workforce to the extent that we could be to actually create a more robust system, which tells me that capitalism is kind of disingenuous. So anyway, started thinking about that. Um, and then for, the, with, for your, um, Joyri, Joyri? Joyri. Joydi, um, with regard to the, I was curious about the physical toll that the hair flipping piece of your performance took. Because um, when I was thinking about that rhythmic sound and that uh, 
that the whipping sound, I couldn't help but think of like Catholic self-flagellation in terms of um, like a symbolic battle, internal battle around black beauty in the face of whiteness. Like my mom's Panamanian and when I moved to Miami as a kid, okay, so sorry. I'm totally, basically went to a Dominican hair salon and they were gonna put seven up on my hair to straighten it. And I remember being from Texas and just being like, what the hell's going on, you know what I mean? Um, and realizing that there is a complexity around race and you know, skin whitening for the Haitians in terms of like the ointment that they use. So I thought, um, I just wanted to ask if you had ever thought about that as a part of um, that performance. And then, that's it, okay. What is 7-Up doing inside our bodies too? What, what? Okay, 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 yeah, I get it. But still, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, self-flagellation was definitely a, kind of like a derivative idea from from like an interpretation of that gesture. And you said like the, the toll on the body, yeah, next day, well, actually the same night, my neck really hurt. Next day it hurt even more, my, my legs, everything. But a lot of my performances have that um, effect on me. Um, because uh, they're kind of labor-intensive in a way or another. Um, but yeah, that self-flagellation and, and the idea of like, you know, staining all this whiteness, but also kind of re, um, reclaiming it at, as territory through the, the black ink um, is definitely an idea that is in there. Um, and you talked about Dominican hair salons and like the... Um, complex politics of, of that. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, I, I have a performance that I didn't present because um, I didn't think there was going to be time, but I have a performance named Canela, actually, where I'm lying on a lounging chair and putting a cinnamon, well, something that looks like sunblock or suntan, um, but when you spend time in the performance room, you start smelling cinnamon because it's a cream that's made of, out of cinnamon. And um, it looks, it kind of blends in with my skin tone. And um, I lie there for like the length of the song Piel Canela by Nat King Cole and Bobby Capo, which is a song that talks about, basically like romanticizes the, the cinnamon skin color. Um, and, and the cinnamon in the meantime is burning my skin because it does that when you put it for like 10, 15 minutes. It's, you start feeling like your circulation, whatever, your blood boiling or something. Um, yeah, so that's... When, when you have arthritis, for instance, yeah. in the, my parents are from the island of Sri Lanka where cinnamon was grown, is grown, and they use it for arthritis or for joint pain or even athletes um, because you know it warms your mm -hmm. joints up naturally yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah yeah i think in terms of uh the labor in your performance i'm seeing labor from your preparation you spending time braiding your hair yeah. you know that takes mm -hmm. like a number of hours yeah. something that we forget about the braiding salon is the number of hours women are braiding day in, day out, how many heads they go through yeah. and what that means on their bodies. They're also standing. Um, and so we're starting to get a lot of uh, issues with the repetitive strain disorder 
Um, and there's all of these uh, ideas around certification that people need to get to work in the hair salon, but none of that education is uh, helping people with thinking about these ideas. You know, this, it's about how to take care of the client, but not necessarily take care of um, the service provider. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm often thinking about labor. I used to get very upset uh, when I'd go to the braiding salon in the U.S. because it's very expensive. And then I started to learn braiding myself, and it's, it, it takes a lot of time. It is quite painful as you are, you know, learning. You get used to it, but then, you know, what is this? There's hidden damage that's going on all the time. This idea of hair care is quite interesting because there's a, there's a part that is nurturing and there's often a part that's damaging. Wow. Um, wow. That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the dynamic that happens to any um, care industry, right? Whether it's your mother or us as women, who are we're, we're raised to be this so-called nurturing person. And, uh, and th that there is always a, a hidden, often hidden and, and unspoken of damage to it. And when a ritual reveals that damage, of course, people are often resistant to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like the, the politics of braiding. Oh, you have some yeah, yeah. Oh, well, like, um, the service of braiding and the, the difference between, like, the global north, global south, the, econo the economics of it, it's another really interesting um, thing to look at. Because as you said, you got a very complex braid, you know, for $3. And I think in the Dominican Republic, there's also, like, the women that work in the beaches braiding, um, mostly blonde hair, um, also get paid get paid very little in comparison to what the same thing would cost here. And that's also something that is not only braiding, but any service in the global south translates the same way. I think also because, um, you know, the, the way we place that within an economic system is different. Uh, the braiding uh, for me back home is something that maybe a sister could do, a cousin could do, I could hire someone, but there is also a way that I can access it without paying money. There's an economy of relationships that also stands in for that. Um, sometimes I think about the you know, difference in um, what a living wage needs to be in, in certain places. So a braider in New York City needs to keep that roof over her head she uh, has a family to raise. She has a way to enter the system, uh, become a breadwinner almost automatically, where her male counterparts might not be able to do the same thing. Uh, so for me, uh, the, the breeding salon in uh, the U.S. is quite interesting in terms of the economic power that it gives black women. You know, I was um, sort of giving that uh, narration of a woman who went home uh, to Benin, who uh, she filmed the baby shower and because other people couldn't come to to come couldn't fly home as well at the time then she um she screens it for people and so people are also buying tickets to go back home they're building houses back home they're also clothing family feeding family back home and so it's very dynamic um what you're able to do as someone who's braiding hair in this space versus what you're able to do with the money um back home there was a question back there, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Hi, my name is Andrea, and thank you all for your contributions this evening. Um, I had two thoughts that kind of came to mind while you're talking, and I came in kind of late, so forgive me if I'm being repetitive. Um, one is like that um, in my household, we all cut each other's hair because it just saved money. It just seemed like common sense, you know, like 
who really need something so badly that you just can't do it at home. So there's something I find kind of, um, uh, I find that like a lot of white culture suggests that you, that care is commodified in order to access care, you have to purchase it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these kinds of like home forms of care that you would get from a cousin or a sister or an auntie aren't accessed by the nuclear family and kind of like how a lot of these services have gone from being inside the home to being like commodified outside the home. Um, so uh, that was the first thought. And the second thought I had was, um, I remember in high school, I went to high school in the suburbs of New Jersey, which was fairly like racially homogenous, like primarily white. And there were still like so many girls who would come back with the braids. And it, it was almost worn as a form of social status of saying like, oh, I got to go on vacation to Sandals, <laughs> you know, or like to Jamaica, or like typically it was Jamaica, Cancun, uh, you know, Dominican Republic, like St. Thomas, whatever, and how like the braids have now been like kind of appropriated in such a way that it confers value to its wearer as like a person who has like not only stylistically has kind of primacy over her other high school classmates because she's like cute and cool and has a different hairstyle that is so mysterious because no one knows who black people are and in you know suburban New Jersey, <laughs> um, but also that like uh, it's now also a form of like oh I've accessed another culture and the way I've done this um, is is through is through many levels of, of privilege and this is like the artifact I, I, I take from that experience. So if you know if anybody would like to comment on on those two ideas, um, that would be great. Thank you. I was taking some notes when you were talking and um, when you mentioned the kind of like the commodification of um, care um, and how that that seems to be more prevalent in whiteness, I was thinking of like, imagine the commodification of whitening in a place where everyone is black and black, black and brown, um, which is why I think part of why I think like the Dominican hair salon is so successful because people are um, living this like colonized mindset of um, straight hair is more beautiful or more desirable or more clean, um, but it's not your natural, the natural state of your hair. So you need to maintain it every week or twice a week to keep it that way. So I'm happy for the women that work in hair salons because they definitely have uh, um, an income um, for sure, but you know I'm I'm not happy about the politics that that represents in the larger scale of things. And um, and and I was also thinking on the counterpart of that, who can afford? Like I see this um, movement of um, embracing blackness in the Dominican Republic that is becoming more mainstream. And I'm happy about it, but at the same time, I'm I'm also aware of the privileges of who can wear their natural hair, um, in what spaces, in um, in um, you know when the na national politics of the island are against it, and just the fact that it had to be you know there had to be protests for people to not be discriminated like five years ago and taking their headshot for their national um, ID, um, or that there needs to be discussions of like, I when I was coming back um, from the DR like a week or two ago, 
the the security the person that looked at my passport when I was leaving um, in the airport was a very beautiful woman with um, natural hair and she had it kind of like a ponytail kind of like this and then like you know a pineapple type thing um, but she was like oh I love your haircut how do you get that and I was like I cut my own hair because I had to learn because in the Dominican Republic there was no hair salon for um, natural hair when I was growing up um, and and we had like a brief conversation and she said like oh I wish I could wear it like that I you know like there's been improvements in in the politics of hair um, hairstyling in the professional sphere but I still need to wear it up for it to be kind of like not commented on um, so as as happy as I am about the progress and and I find it very necessary on uh, those discussions I'm also aware of like the privileges that um, you have to be able to enter and leave these spaces with this hair and also like the economics of it, who has the money to afford braids, if your family doesn't have that knowledge because they haven't practiced it in years, um, etc. So it's it's a, a complex conversation in that realm as well. Yeah. Uh, you're speaking about appropriation. I'm not going to... Uh... Uh, you know, I'm not going to play police, but I think that, you know, we have a character like Rachel Dolezal and uh, something that she used to enter into the, to, to allow herself to be validated as a black woman was uh, to learn the hairdressing practices, to, um, to take up the uh, aesthetic um, and to learn, the, you know, that skill set. I find that quite interesting. You know, I think... Uh, there's a documentary out on her. I hope more work is done on, you know, what she did with hair. It's just such a, it's so fascinating to me. Um, it, was, it was really something that she, and a very powerful tool to allow herself to pass as black. Um, you know, she also does hair for black women in her community. So it's also something that allows her to be taken up into the social structure, not just a, uh, to pass on the surface. I thought it was really fascinating. Other questions? There is a question here. Yeah. Not anymore? Yeah. Hi, this was amazing. Better than I expected, so thank you. <laughs> so honest. We can, it's a safe space. You can be honest. <laughs> so um, there's this, I've, there's this um, painting. I think it's a Brazilian painter where he has um the grandmother's black um the daughter's I think mix and she brings home a white suitor and the grandmother's like yeah. with her yeah, I, know, I know that one yeah. yes <laughs> okay so my question is um because this is it's so sad that we're still it's still an issue think it'll always be an issue but it's really sad and uh, looking at you guys you have you, you guys are uh, you know all sorts of in yeah yes all sorts of in between thank you um it's something I still deal with and trying to you know accept in a way even though it's very emotional so my point is when did you guys come into you know, this acceptance, or when did you notice it, and how did you process it? Because it's 
every it's day, heavy. Every day. Some days it, it doesn't even happen anymore because I'm just, I'm good. But other days it's a conversation and I'm happy for these conversations. I think, um, especially coming from the DR, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a process. Um, I went to like a middle class Catholic school where like natural hair was definitely not, you know, encouraged at all. Um, all of these politics of neatness played a lot into it. And braids were not even an option. Like, you know, maybe if you came back from some resort, you know, with your family and you got your hair braided, they would allow you to wear it for a couple of days before telling you something. But um, there was re definitely no model in, in that school for, um, you know, for you to like feel comfortable. And even if you straighten, in, straighten your hair, it would be a noticeable thing because of the texture that black straight, straightened hair has and how it's different from naturally straight hair. People would point that out as well. So even in that process, you felt like you were, you were faking something, and um, which you were, but, um, but you felt unwelcome in that, in that um, yeah, like kind of not enough for, you didn't have a model to be yourself, but then you, you couldn't pass as anything else, just, you know, neatly. Um, and uh, at least for me, it was really great to go to art school when I was 14. I, I went to art school every day after regular school for my last three years of high school. Um, and it was really in art school and the spaces around art school. So the, the National School of Fine Arts in the Dominican Republic is in the colonial zone which is a touristic space, but also a very intellectual space. So it's a weird combination because you have the tourists, um, but then you also have like the writers and the artists and the galleries and all these other spaces that are very stimulating and critical. Um, so I think for me that was very helpful in um, finding models to um, be myself. Um, And interestingly enough, I was also um, a volunteer for this exchange um, organization called AFS. And I was later a, a student. And that's how I lived in Belgium for a year when I was 17. And um, because I was a volunteer for this organization also since age 14, 15, um, I got to hang out with a lot of uh, people my age who were foreigners. And then part of my own acceptance of race came from that because they... Um, they would look at you as beautiful, which in your own country didn't happen as much. So, I mean, it, it comes from the combination of all of these things, um, that acceptance. Um, but then, you know, later on you discover the fetishizing and then you have like yeah. more complex That's stuff um, to unpack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think I have some other ideas, but I'll come back to it because When you were talking, I had so many ideas and I can't remember any of them anymore, but maybe Nancy wants to talk while I remember stuff. Um, I'm from a family of uh, five girls, five, five sisters, and uh, in a situation like that, someone has to be the tomboy, and I was it. And, uh, you know, questioning ideas around uh, gender representation or self-presentation or uh, ways of moving, speaking, these are things that are... Uh, conditioned, you know, even from the moment that we're playing, you're given dolls and combs and little teacups and 
you know, but boys are given footballs and able to run around and things. So I was uh, sitting with the dolls, but, you know, I would do other stuff with them or my sister and I, youngest and I would throw the heads into the fire and see how they would melt and things. So <laughs> that synthetic hair is so wonderful, like catches a spark so easily. Um, so I've always been questioning and uh, experimenting. I think I'm, I'm really happy that I was given the, I was allowed the space to do that range of, uh, yeah, that, that, that level of questioning as a young person. And I continue to question um, culture, you know, ideas around gender um, and presentation is so much a part of that. Um, my mother was one of the first black women uh, to be a general practitioner in our country, in independent Zimbabwe. She went and studied in Germany and in the UK. Um, she did a housemanship in the UK. And when I look at photographs of them uh, in England, it's amazing. She's got this beautiful Afro. And when she came back to Zimbabwe, she maintained it. And it was great to uh, be collected by her at the end of the day because she would come out with the, her white dust coat with this afro. And so for me, I didn't think that there's anything strange, though, of course, the ecosystem around me is uh, signing different things. And some of my siblings are taking all of that up. I still want to maintain that um, black women deserve a sense of agency and shouldn't be shamed for uh, uh, picking certain codes. It, uh, we need to encourage more like learning and understanding about ourselves or or why, uh, where influences are coming from, um, and give people breath and space. Um, you know, I, I, I really am a champion for that. I want to add uh, a small note that I think I recently heard Lupita Nyong'o talking about how, you know, uh, black people have done all sorts of things to their hair for, for centuries, even like, you know, uh, early forms of, uh, or different forms of extensions. They straightened, they played with it, they added ochre, um, but without the context of saying what you have with to begin with is uh, inferior and bad and this, there's a superiority. So people play with their identity and hair and so whether we put on a blonde wig or not, it, uh, without that context of this thing is what you should aspire to, um, without that, play all we want, you know, um, with, with identity, essentially, and, and it's a creative expression uh, using the body. Uh, it's, it's no problem, but it's, it's that entry of that conversation that's really kind of, you know, troubles why we are straightening hair. Yeah, it's definitely. not like, oh, I want to do something different today. Yeah. yeah, I think you bring up such an important point. Uh, what are practices that have been there before the current, uh, you know, um, sort of ideas around styling. Hair is a material, it's a mat something on our bodies that we realized very early on is a material and can be used to as a sign, a sign of status. You're married, you're not married, you are royalty, you work at, in this particular level. You know, it's just through all cultures um, or uh, borrowing from other cultures because of intermarriage, because of, um, you know, conquering and telling these people, no, no, you must no longer use that, and now you're part of us, so now you, you, we all wear this, or you must wear yours like that, so you can show the difference. Um, and so I think it's really important to think about the history of hairdressing practices, and that there's always been a sense of hierarchy, there's always been some kind of work, even though we talk about natural, natural hair still needs to be maintained. If you don't do some level of maintenance, that is going to 
you know, something is not going to go <laughs> well, even, you know, not combing your hair, it still has to be washed, otherwise there's consequences. So um, hair never is left. We always have to touch it, maintain it somehow. Thank you so much. It's a um, great way to end our conversation. And I have to thank our wonderful audience who also were remarkable. <laughs> Not surprisingly, but I'm I'm grateful I'm grateful for for your presence and for for your intellectual presence as well for the kind of questions um, that you brought with you, um, and thank you to our two artists as well. Yes, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Jory and Nancy, for generously presenting your work to us and beautifully articulating the complexities of ritual and belonging and fetishization and appropriation and all those fine lines that we have to deal with all the time. And thank you um, very much to you, Nilika, for your beautiful, generous moderation. With this, uh, forum is over. Uh, the, all the various nine panels and conversations and the performance the other day have been sound recorded and in some cases video recorded. And those recordings will be available online very soon maybe even next week on the 154 uh, website. Tell your friends and listen to what you've missed. And I think you still all have about 15 minutes to look at around the fair, <laughs> if you like, uh, because it is also closing. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you again to everyone, and see you next year. <laughs>